I would have you turn with me today to Gospel of John, chapter 12, and verse 24. For the Lord Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Churches of this day and age have swallowed the poisonous lie that in order to build a church and in order to grow the church, the church must adopt various worldly means to bring people in and to keep their attention. Thus, the music of the church begins to sound more like a rock concert or a nightclub. The sermons more resemble a comic routine than a word from the living God. An entertainment or amusement park theme pervades the church growth strategy so often in churches today. And why? Because having departed from the word of truth, the church of Jesus Christ no longer truly believes that it is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ alone that is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth. Dear ones, it is not the wisdom of man that brings life to one who is dead in his trespasses and sins. It is not the cleverness of man that grows the church of Jesus Christ. It is the word of God alone faithfully applied by the Spirit of God that accomplishes such miracles in people's lives. There is perhaps not a more graphic contrast between the church growth of the world and the church growth of Jesus Christ than is exhibited in our text today where the Lord declares that spiritual life and growth Proceed not from the wisdom of man, but from the death of Christ and the death of every man in Christ. In other words, there can be no life and growth in the kingdom of Christ without death. Before certain things can live and grow, certain things must die. Let us see how this principle is taught and applied by our Lord today. Our main points from our text are these. First of all, the goal. The ingathering of all nations, as we see in John chapter 12, verses 20 and 22. Second, the cause the death of Christ in John 12, verses 23 and 24. And third, the means, the death of self, John 12, verses 25 and 26. 
Our first main point then from our text, the goal, the end gathering of all nations. Look with me at John 12, verses 20 through 22. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. The Apostle John tells us in chapter 12, verse 1, that as we consider this portion of Scripture today, we have arrived at the week just prior to Christ's last Passover which Passover occurred the day before his death. John begins by accounting a supper shared with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, the same Lazarus who had been miraculously raised from the dead by the Lord Jesus just a short time before this. We move on in chapter 12. We come to Verse 12 and following, and the inspired writer takes us to the events of, it says, the next day, which was the Sunday before Christ's crucifixion. As Jesus descends the western slopes of the Mount of Olives and draws near to Jerusalem, The multitudes who had come to celebrate the feast of the Passover began to form all around Jesus. Josephus, the Jewish uh, Jewish historian, notes that as many as two million people might be gathered in Jerusalem on such an occasion as this. You'll recall that the Passover was that divinely appointed annual feast celebrating the deliverance of God's people out of Egyptian bondage. It typified and pointed to the deliverance of the Lord Jesus Christ and delivering his people from the bondage of sin, the bondage of Satan. Both the actions and the words of the people who crowded around Jesus at this time are very significant. In verse 13 of John 12, they took the branches of palm trees and they began to wave them, which was a symbol of great rejoicing and triumph. And they at the same time shouted with a loud voice, Hosanna, which means save now. They continued, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now, thinking in terms of the national feast that was upon them, that is the Passover, which commemorated the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage, and thinking also in terms of the raising of Lazarus from the dead just a few days before this, Here was a crowd that was now ready for God's Messiah to deliver Israel from Roman bondage, even as Moses had delivered Israel from Egyptian bondage. 
The king they wanted was a military deliverer, a David to crush their Goliaths. Note, however, as we continue through the text, the, the, the animal upon which the Lord rides. He rides not upon a white steed, which was common to conquerors of that day, but rather upon a young ass or donkey. In Revelation 19, Christ is, in fact, represented and depicted as riding upon a white horse after his state of exaltation. But in this state of humiliation, he rides upon a slowly donkey. Although the Lord received the acclamations of the people that he was the king of Israel, nevertheless, he declared by this action that he was not the kind of king that they imagined. My kingdom is not of this world, you recall, the Lord told Pilate. Christ's throne and dominion, dear one, do not originate in this world. His kingdom is not subject to the laws and the constitutions of this world. The power and authority with which he rules is not an earthly mandate, but a heavenly mandate. The kingdom of Christ originates in another world, even heaven. And although Christ's kingdom invades this world and is manifested in this world, his kingdom is not subject to the kingdoms of this world. His kingdom, dear ones, strikes first at the heart of man's deepest need, a liberty from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And by riding into Jerusalem upon a young, a young donkey, in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, the Lord was fixing the eyes of those who had spiritual sight to see that he came as a king in a far greater sense than a mere military hero. The last event that leads up to our text in John 12, verse 24, is described for us in John 12, verses 20 through 22, wherein we find certain Greeks or Gentile proselytes who had come to the feast of Passover and approached Philip saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. That is, we earnestly desire to have an audience to meet with Jesus. These Gentile proselytes desired to meet with the Lord in order that they might hear the word of truth and in order that they might know him and commune with him. Philip, perhaps trying to in some way protect the Lord from a bothersome few Gentiles, just as the disciples, you recall, tried to prevent, to prevent bothersome parents from bringing their children to Jesus that he might bless them. Philip sought out Andrew, the brother of Peter, to get his advice. Perhaps Andrew would know what to do with these Gentiles who want to see Christ. It would seem rather obvious what should be done to us, but uh, here uh, Philip uh, goes to Andrew to ask what should be done. Finally, neither one of them can figure it out. 
and they go to the Lord himself. They bring the message to Jesus, who upon hearing the message from these Greeks that they wanted to see him, the Lord answers Philip and Andrew in the words found in John 12, verses 23 through 28. I would submit, dear ones, that the desire of these Gentiles to see Christ is a foretaste of him who is the desire of the nations, drawing the nations unto himself. Christ foretells here, I submit to you, the ingathering of the Gentiles when it says, that the seed that falls into the ground and dies will bring forth much fruit. He was foretelling the ingathering of the Gentiles. The words of our Lord found in John 12, 24 are in direct response, dear ones, to the earnest desire of these hungering and thirsting Gentiles who have come to commune with Christ. In contrast to the thousands of Jews who gave an outward and external acceptance of Christ as he entered Jerusalem by waving the the palm branches and shouting Hosanna to the king of Israel. Here were Gentiles, strangers to the covenants, whom the Holy Spirit draws out from the multitudes to seek and to search for Christ. They did not want to stand at a distance and acclaim the, the popularity of Christ. They wanted to be near him, to commune with him, and to know the real Christ of the Bible. The response of the multitudes is manifested, dear ones, all too often in the church by thousands. As long as a popular brand of Christ or Christianity is manufactured and placed before the eyes of people, people follow in great demonstrations of support. Whether it's Christ the teacher who has given great moral principles or Christ the man who has given us a pattern of life which we should follow or Christ the miracle worker who works the miraculous and gives miraculous signs, or Christ the lover of man who has demonstrated his love and compassion for man. Dear ones, it is a kind of idolatry of which we may be guilty when we create a Christ in our own image and simply take one aspect of Christ and make that to be the total Christ that is spoken of in the Bible. A Christ that appeals to the masses. As if you were running for some political office. Don't want to possibly offend anybody, but appeal to everyone. Dear ones, Christ was all of the above that I just mentioned. He was the teacher. He was a man. He was a miracle worker. He was a lover of man. But he was not only... One of those things to the exclusion of everything else. How many people want to follow in the parade zealously proclaiming Christ the judge of all men? 
How many want to follow and wave the palm branches and call out Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath? How many want to to acclaim Christ, the hater of false doctrine and vain worship? Or Christ, the king and only lawgiver in the church? Or Christ, the master who calls all his servants to suffer persecution for his cause? As the master, the teacher has suffered, so will the student. The multitudes in Scotland flocked by the thousands to sign the National Covenant and then the Solemn League and Covenant, joyfully proclaiming Christ as King of his church and Lord of the nation. And yet in a few short years, Scotland was paying allegiance to Charles II as the King of the church. Frenzied multitudes and enthusiastic rallies, more often than not, are not where you will find the Christ of the Bible. For in a few short days from the glorious entry of Christ into Jerusalem, the same multitudes who shouted, Blessed is the King of Israel, would be shouting, Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. The covenant promises of salvation made to Israel were not the actual inheritance, dear ones, of a mere physical seed, but were and are the inheritance, the actual inheritance of all who are a spiritual seed scattered over all the world who believe and trust in Jesus Christ alone for their eternal salvation. The blessings of the, of the covenant are externally poured forth upon those who are baptized. And as our children are baptized, from the day that they are very, very young, they enjoy numerous external blessings through this union that they have with the Church of Jesus Christ. But it is not, dear ones, the mere physical seed that are the true spiritual seed, necessarily. Not all Israel are of Israel. That is why, dear ones, as parents... We must continue to fall upon our faces before Christ. That Christ would cause all of the instruction, the love, the correction, the discipline, the family worship, the corporate worship that our children go through to be blessed to their hearts and their lives. That they may bear that fruit that fruit of salvation. The Lord, in giving this agricultural parable about a seed, was looking to the harvest that would come to believe in him from all tribes, peoples, tongues, and nations. You'll remember 
later on in verse 32 of the same chapter, the Lord says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men, that is, all men from all nations unto me. All, every nation, the Lord will bring his, his people to himself. And Paul tells us in Romans 11 that God will restore and bring the fullness of the nations uh, to himself and then will restore all Israel unto himself in that time of worldwide millennial blessing upon the earth before the second coming of Christ. Moving on to the second main point, the cause. The cause of this ingathering. How can this ingathering occur? It's the death of Christ is the cause. As we continue in our text in John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, we read, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth, bringeth forth much fruit. <clears throat> Here, Christ foretells, dear ones, his death, which is the cause of this new life that will come to the nations of the world. It will be through his atoning death wherein he would once and for all satisfy God's divine justice against undeserving sinners chosen by God from the foundation of the world. Life and growth would never have issued, dear ones, to the church of Jesus Christ, would never have issued forth to the nations apart from the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. As a seed falls to the ground, so the Lord of glory fell to this earth in his incarnation, and thus becoming man, he fulfilled all of the law of God for his spiritual seed in him. And as a seed that falls to the ground must die, so he was crucified and buried, to satisfy the infinite justice of a holy God on behalf of his spiritual seed in him. And finally, as a seed that dies brings forth life to a multitude of seeds, so Christ has brought life by his glorious resurrection from the dead to all his spiritual seed in him. Beloved, we live because he died. Never forget that. Life proceeds from death. All genuine growth, therefore, in the true church of Jesus Christ, that invisible church, that church of true saints, is due to his death and his resurrection. It is due to the faithful proclamation of his death and resurrection that his seed that flow from him, live and multiply. It is not by the wisdom of man, nor by the entertainment of man, nor by the accommodations man might make to other men's sensibilities. 
but by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This truth is exactly what the Passover in John 12 was intended to communicate to Israel. Israel lived and was delivered from the angel of death there in Egypt that passed over them because of the death of a lamb whose flesh was eaten and whose blood was smeared upon the doorposts of their homes. They lived because that lamb died. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is the true Passover. And all those who eat of him by faith and believe in his atoning sacrifice have everlasting life. In John chapter 6, verses 53 through 58, notice the eating which stands here for the believing. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Even if they appear as a small group of bothersome Gentiles, yet if they truly seek, dear ones, to come to Christ with all their heart, to hear him, to commune with him, to know him, they will not be disappointed. You see, this is the victory in reality to which the palm leaves, the palm branches, the royal acclamations, and the young donkey ultimately point. The Lord Jesus Christ would reign as king over his true Israel in conquering all their enemies, and particularly the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our final last point, the means. That is, the means by which these nations will be gathered unto the Lord. At least the means that the Lord lays out here. There are no doubt other very important means, like the word, the, uh, the sacraments, uh, various things that the Lord uses as means of grace. But the means that he states here is very interesting, by which the nations will be gathered in. It's the death of self. It's the denying of self. It's following Christ and being crucified and being humbled that others will be drawn to Jesus Christ. Not in exalting self, but in denying self. Look with me at John 12, verses 25 and 26. 
Jesus continues by saying, He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Dear ones, Christ's death not only means life to you, but may I also say, his death means your death. His death means your death. We can tend to become very excited that Christ's death has earned for us everlasting life. The forgiveness of sin. The righteousness of Christ. And yet forget to read the rest of the passage that was to be given to the Gentiles who sought him. The Lord, having laid down for us the ground of our salvation in his death and resurrection, in John 12:24, takes us back to the cross and says, In effect, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's a passage that is stated, or Christ states that in Matthew 16, 24. We must lose our life to find it. As Christians, we hear the words of the Lord in John 12, 23. The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And forget that the Son of Man himself was glorified by his death and by his suffering. Beloved, if we would reign with him, the Bible says we must suffer with him. If we would be glorified with him, we must suffer with him. If we live for the comforts and the pleasures of this life, the favor and the applause of men in this life, even the blessings of this life, if we live for the blessings of this life, whether it be our husband or our wife or our father or mother or children, we shall lose not only all these things, not only these blessings in this life, but we shall lose or destroy our lives forever in hell. If, however, we hate this life in the world, we shall preserve it unto everlasting life. How are we to hate our life? In this world? Well, by not making the things of this life that for which we live. Beginning next Lord's Day, we're going to begin a series through the book of Ecclesiastes and that familiar frame, a refrain under the sun comes up continuously throughout, throughout that book. If we live as those who merely are living under the sun and merely have that earthly perspective, simply seeking the pleasures of this life and enjoying this life without having that heavenly perspective of what really makes life worth living, the meaning of this life, being Christ himself, If we do not have that, we will lose our life, as Jesus here says. 
How are we to hate our life, dear ones? By viewing an inordinate affection with the pleasures and comforts of this life, not as friends, but as enemies, to be avoided. Inordinate affections and pleasures and comforts of men. When they are inordinate, when they are out of balance, when we prize those above everything else, then again, dear ones, they are not. We've made them our friends rather than our enemies. Here is where, dear ones, we are to carry our cross of crucifixion daily. Not in order to atone for our sins. Only Jesus could do that. But in order to die daily, as Paul says, I die daily. I am thrown into the ground, Paul in effect is saying, I am thrown into the ground and die daily so that there might be much fruit that comes forth from my life and into the lives of others being drawn to Jesus Christ. Where pride is present, dear ones, where self-exaltation and thinking only of our own desires, thinking only of our own will is present. We cannot expect people to be drawn to Jesus Christ. But where there is death to self, that the sinful desires, the flesh, there will be life that flows forth to others. The blood of the martyrs is said to be the seed of the church. That's the ultimate, as it were, in dying, laying down our lives for the cause of Christ. But that should, in effect, be happening every day. Sanctification, dear ones, in the Christian life, in the Christian family, in the Christian church, and in the Christian nation is always the result of death. Shorter Catechism question 35 asks, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die. To die to sin and live unto righteousness. Here, is our biblical principle of church growth given to us from Christ's own lips. We don't need any of the various methods that are used in churches today. We need simply to be faithful to what Christ has said and follow his, his example of dying to ourselves, to that sinful part of our life that much fruit might come from that dying, that Jesus Christ might be glorified. In application of this message to the Lord's Supper today, we are right to come to the Lord's Supper, dear ones, to rejoice in the life that comes to us from Christ's death as we eat of the bread and drink of the wine. But we must also understand, beloved, 
the death that comes to us as well from Christ's death. Not simply the life that comes to us from Christ's death, but the death that comes to us from Christ's death. We have died representatively in Christ. We have died representatively to the world, the flesh, and the devil. His death was our death to all of these things. As we look at Christ and his death, we should be reminded every time we think of Christ's death, I died with Christ. Those sinful desires, that profane speech, that behavior that is not according to the will of God, died with Christ. How can we therefore continue to live in it? How can we treat it as if it's no big deal? How can we continue to go on and on and on without realizing and that affecting us that we died with Christ? Therefore, we are to put these things to death in our own life. Not again, by our own power, but by the power that comes from his death and his resurrection. Leaning upon him, trusting him, casting ourselves upon Christ and his merits. And just as, dear ones, life flows from Christ's death to us, so there is analogous to that a kind of life that will flow to others through our death. There are problems in our marriages. Well, there needs to be more death. Death to self. Are there are problems in our church. Personal problems between members of the church. There needs to be more death. Problems the church at large. There needs to be more death. We need to die to all the sin that we continue to promote. We'll never be perfect in this life, but we must, as we have read and summarized in our shorter catechism, we must be renewed in the whole man gradually and being enabled more and more to die and to sin and live unto righteousness. And this meal... The Lord's Supper, dear ones, reminds us of the life we have from Christ, but also the need to die more and more to sin in our lives. Amen. Will you please stand with me in prayer? This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com We can also be reached by email at swrb 
at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.